Section fifty eight of the Life of Samuel Johnson, volume two by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. I had followed his recommendation and consulted Lord Hales, who upon this subject had a firm opinion contrary to mine. His lordship obligingly took the trouble to write me a letter in which he discussed with legal and historical learning the points in which I saw much difficulty, maintaining that the succession of heirs general was the succession by the law of Scotland from the throne to the cottage, as far as we can learn it by record, observing that the estate of our family had not been limited to heirs male, and that though an heir male had in one instance been chosen in preference to nearer females, that had been an arbitrary act which had seemed to be best in the embarrassed state of affairs at that time. And the fact was that upon a fair computation of the value of land and money at the time, applied to the estate and the burthens upon it, there was nothing given to the heir male but the skeleton of an estate. The plea of conscience, said his lordship, which you put, is a most respectable one, especially when conscience and self are on different sides. But I think that conscience is not well informed, and that self and she ought on this occasion to be of a side. This letter, which had considerable influence upon my mind, I sent to Dr. Johnson, begging to hear from him again upon this interesting question. To James Boswell, Esquire, dear sir, having not any acquaintance with the laws or customs of Scotland, I endeavoured to consider your question upon general principles, and found nothing of much validity that I could oppose to this position. He who inherits a fief unlimited by his ancestors inherits the power of limiting it according to his own judgment or opinion. If this be true, you may join with your father. Further consideration produces another conclusion. He who receives a fief unlimited by his ancestors gives his heirs some reason to complain if he does not transmit it unlimited to posterity. For why should he make the state of others worse than his own without a reason? If this be true, though neither you nor your father are about to do what is quite right, but as your father violates, I think, the legal succession least, he seems to be nearer the right than yourself. It cannot but occur that women have natural and equitable claims as well as men, and these claims and not to be capriciously or lightly superseded or infringed. When fiefs implied military service, it is easily discerned why females could not inherit them, but that reason is now at an end. As manners make laws, manners likewise repeal them. These are the general conclusions which I have attained. None of them are very favourable to your scheme of entail nor perhaps to any scheme. 
my observation was only that he who acquires an estate may bequeath it capriciously footnote i had reminded him of his observation mentioned volume two page two six one boswell and a footnote if it contains any conviction includes this position likewise that only he who acquires an estate may entail it capriciously but i think it may be safely presumed that he who inherits an estate inherits all the power legally concomitant and that he who gives or leaves unlimited an estate legally limitable must be presumed to give that power of limitation which he omitted to take away and to commit future contingencies to future prudence in these two positions i believe lord hales will advise you to rest every other notion of possession seems to me full of difficulties and embarrassed with scruples if these axioms be allowed you have arrived now at full liberty without the help of particular circumstances which however have in your case great weight you very rightly observe that he who passing by his brother gave the inheritance to his nephew could limit no more than he gave and by lord hales's estimate of fourteen years purchase what he gave was no more than you may easily entail according to your own opinion if that opinion should finally prevail lord hales's suspicion that entails are encroachments on the dominion of providence may be extended to all hereditary privileges and all permanent institutions i do not see why it may not be extended to any provision for the present hour since all care about futurity proceeds upon a supposition that we know at least in some degree what will be future of the future we certainly know nothing but we may form conjectures from the past and the power of forming conjectures includes in my opinion the duty of acting in conformity to that probability which we discover providence gives the power of which reason teaches the use i am dear sir your most faithful servant samuel johnson february the ninth seventeen seventy six i hope i shall get some ground now with mrs boswell make my compliments to her and to the little people don't burn papers they may be safe enough in your own box you will wish to see them hereafter to the same disser to the letters which i have written about your great question i have nothing to add if your conscience is satisfied you have now only your prudence to consult i long for a letter that i may know how this troublesome and vexatious question is at last decided footnote the entail framed by my father with various judicious clauses was settled by him and me settling the estate upon the heirs male of his grandfather which i found had been already done by my grandfather imperfectly but so as to be defeated only by selling the lands i was freed by dr johnson from scruples of a conscientious obligation and could therefore gratify my father 
but my opinion and partiality of male succession in its full extent remained unshaken yet let me not be thought harsh or unkind to daughters for my notion is that they should be treated with great affection and tenderness and always participate of the prosperity of the family boswell in the footnote i hope that it will at last end well lord hales's letter was very friendly and very seasonable but i think his aversion from entails has something in it like superstition providence is not counteracted by any means which providence puts into our power the continuance and propagation of families makes a great part of the jewish law and is by no means prohibited in the christian institution though the necessity of it continues no longer hereditary tenures are established in all civilized countries and are accompanied in most with hereditary authority sir william temple considers our constitution as defective that there is not an unalienable estate in land connected with the peerage Footnote. temple in popular discontents examines the general dissatisfaction with the judicature of the house of lords till the end of elizabeth's reign he states the peers who were few in number were generally possessed of great estates which rendered them less subject to corruption as one remedy for the evil existing in his time he suggests that the crown shall create no baron who shall not at the same time entail four thousand pounds a year upon that honour whilst it continues in his family a viscount five thousand pounds an earl six thousand pounds a marquis seven thousand pounds and a duke eight thousand pounds End of footnote and lord bacon mentions as a proof that the turks are barbarians their want of stirpes as he calls them or hereditary rank footnote a cruel tyranny bathed in the blood of their emperors upon every succession a heap of vassals and slaves no nobles no gentlemen no freeman no inheritance of land no strip of ancient families in square brackets nullae stirpes antiquae spedding bacon and a footnote do not let your mind when it is freed from the supposed necessity of a rigorous entail be entangled with contrary objections and think all entails unlawful till you have cogent arguments which i believe you will never find i am afraid of scruples Footnote. let me warn you very earnestly against scruples he wrote on march the fifth of this year i am no friend to scruples he had said at st andrews boswell's hebrides august the nineteenth on his in square packets scruples made many men miserable but few men good crocus boswell end of footnote i have now sent all lord hales's papers part i found hidden in a drawer in which i had laid them for security and had forgotten them part of these are written twice i have returned both the copies part i had read before 
be so kind as to return Lord Hales my most respectful thanks for his first volume. His accuracy strikes me with wonder. His narrative is far superior to that of Eno, as I have formerly mentioned. I am afraid that the trouble which my irregularity and delay has cost him is greater, far greater, than any good that I can do him will ever recompense. But if I have any more copy, I will try to do better. Pray let me know if Mrs. Boswell is friends with me, and pay my respects to Veronica and Euphemia and Alexander. I am, so your most humble servant, Samuel Johnson, February the 15th, 1775, in square bracket, 1776. Mr. Boswell to Dr. Johnson, Edinburgh, February the 20th, 1776. You have illuminated my mind and relieved me from imaginary shackles of conscientious obligation. Were it necessary, I could immediately join in an entail upon the series of heirs approved by my father, but it is better not to act too suddenly. Dr. Johnson to Mr. Boswell, dear sir, I am glad that what I could think or say has at all contributed to quiet your thoughts. Your resolution not to act till your opinion is confirmed by more deliberation is very just. If you have been scrupulous, do not now be rash. I hope that, as you think more and take opportunities of talking with men intelligent in questions of property, you will be able to free yourself from every difficulty. When I wrote last, I sent, I think, ten packets. Did you receive them all? You must tell Mrs. Boswell that I suspected her to have written without your knowledge, and therefore did not return any answer, lest a clandestine correspondence should have been perniciously discovered. I will write to her soon. Footnote. A letter to him on the interesting subject of the family settlement, which I had read. Boswell, end of footnote. I am, dear sir, most affectionately yours, Samuel Johnson, February the 24th, 1776. Having communicated to Lord Hales what Dr. Johnson wrote concerning the question which perplexed me so much, his lordship wrote to me, Your scruples have produced more fruit than I ever expected from them. An excellent dissertation on general principles of morals and law. I wrote to Dr. Johnson on the 20th of February, complaining of melancholy and expressing a strong desire to be with him, informing him that the ten packets came all safe, that Lord Hales was much obliged to him, and said he had almost wholly removed his scruples against entails. To James Boswell, Esquire, dear sir, I have not had your letter half an hour. As you lay so much weight upon my notions, I should think it not just to delay my answer. I am very sorry that your melancholy should return, and should be sorry likewise if it could have no relief but from company. My counsel you may have when you are pleased to require it, but of my company you cannot in the next month have much 
for Mr. Thrale will take me to Italy, he says, on the 1st of April. Let me warn you very earnestly against scruples. I am glad that you are reconciled to your settlement, and think it a great honour to have shaken Lord Hales's opinion of entails. Do not, however, hope wholly to reason away your troubles. Do not feed them with attention, and they will die imperceptibly away. Fix your thoughts upon your business, fill your intervals with company, and sunshine will again break in upon your mind. Footnote. Paoli had given Boswell much the same advice. All this, said Paoli, is melancholy. I have also studied metaphysics. I know the arguments for fate and free will, for the materiality and immateriality of the soul, and even the subtle arguments for and against the existence of matter. Ma lasciamo queste dispute ai oziosi. But let us leave these disputes to the idle. Io tengo sempre fermo un gran pensiero. I hold always firm one great object. I never feel a moment of despondency. Boswell's Corsica, end of footnote. If you will come to me, you must come very quickly. And even then I know not, but we may scour the country together, for I have a mind to see Oxford and Lichfield before I set out on this long journey. To this I can only add that I am, dear sir, your most affectionate humble servant, Samuel Johnson, March the 5th, 1776. To the same, dear sir, very early in April we leave England, and in the beginning of the next week I shall leave London for a short time. Of this I think it necessary to inform you that you may not be disappointed in any of your enterprises. I had not fully resolved to go into the country before this day. Please to make my compliments to Lord Hales, and mention very particularly to Mrs. Boswell, my hope that she is reconciled to, sir, your faithful servant, Samuel Johnson, March the 12th, 1776. Above thirty years ago, the heirs of Lord Chancellor Clarendon presented the University of Oxford with the continuation of his history, and such other of his lordship's manuscripts as had not been published, on condition that the profits arising from their publication should be applied to the establishment of a manege in the university. The gift was accepted in full convocation. A person being now recommended to Dr. Johnson as fit to superintend this proposed riding school, he exerted himself with that zeal for which he was remarkable upon every similar occasion. Footnote. Johnson, in his letters to the Thrales during the year 1775, mentions this riding school eight or nine times. The person recommended was named Carter. Gibbon, miscellaneous work, says, The profit of the history has been applied to the establishment of a riding school that the polite exercises might be taught, I know not with what success, in the university. End of footnote. 
but on inquiry into the matter he found that the scheme was not likely to be soon carried into execution the profits arising from the clarendon press being from some mismanagement very scanty this having been explained to him by a respectable dignitary of the church who had good means of knowing it he wrote a letter upon the subject which at once exhibits his extraordinary precision and acuteness and his warm attachment to his alma mater to the reverend dr wetherell master of university college oxford dear sir few things are more unpleasant than the transaction of business with men who are above knowing or caring what they have to do such as the trustees for lord cornbury's institution will perhaps appear when you have read dr blank's letter the last part of the doctor's letter is of great importance the complaint which he makes i have heard long ago and did not know but it was redressed Footnote. I suppose the complaint was that the trustees of the Oxford Press did not allow the London booksellers a sufficient profit upon vending their publications. Boswell, end of footnote. It is unhappy that a practice so erroneous has not yet been altered, for altered it must be, or our press will be useless with all its privileges. The booksellers, who, like all other men, have strong prejudices in their own favour, are enough inclined to think the practice of printing and selling books by any but themselves an encroachment on the rights of their fraternity, and have need of stronger inducements to circulate academical publications than those of one another. For of that mutual cooperation by which the general trade is carried on, the university can bear no part. Of those whom he neither loves nor fears, and from whom he expects no reciprocation of good offices, why should any man promote the interest but for profit? I suppose with all our scholastic ignorance of mankind, we are still too knowing to expect that the booksellers will erect themselves into patrons, and buy and sell under the influence of a disinterested zeal for the promotion of learning. To the booksellers, if we look for either honour or profit from our press, not only their common profit, but something more must be allowed. And if books printed at Oxford are expected to be rated at a high price, that price must be levied on the public, and paid by the ultimate purchaser, not by the intermediate agents. What price shall be set upon the book is to the booksellers, wholly indifferent, provided that they gain a proportionate profit by negotiating the sale. Why books printed at Oxford should be particularly dear I am, however, unable to find. We pay no rent, we inherit many of our instruments and materials, lodging and victuals are cheaper than at London, and therefore workmanship ought at least not to be dearer. Our expenses are naturally less than those of booksellers, and in most cases communities are content with less profit than individuals. It is perhaps not considered 
through how many hands a book often passes before it comes into those of the reader, or what part of the profit each hand must retain as a motive for transmitting it to the next. We will call our primary agent in London Mr. Cadell. Footnote. Cadell published The False Alarm and The Journey to the Hebrides. Gibbon described him as that honest and liberal bookseller, Stuart's Life of Robertson, in the footnote, who receives our books from us, gives them room in his warehouse, and issues them on demand. By him they are sold to Mr. Dilly, a wholesale bookseller, who sends them into the country. And the last seller is the country bookseller. Here are three profits to be paid between the printer and the reader or in the style of commerce between the manufacturer and the consumer and if any of these profits is too penuriously distributed the process of commerce is interrupted we now come to the practical question what is to be done you will tell me with reason that i have said nothing till i declare how much, according to my opinion, of the ultimate price ought to be distributed through the whole succession of sale. The deduction, I am afraid, will appear very great, but let it be considered before it is refused. We must allow for profit between 30 and 35 per cent, between six and seven shillings in the pound, that is, for every book which costs the last buyer twenty shillings we must charge mr cadell with something less than fourteen we must set the copies at fourteen shillings each and superadd what is called the quarterly book or for every hundred books so charged we must deliver an hundred and four the profits will then stand thus Mr. Cadell, who runs no hazard and gives no credit, will be paid for warehouse room and attendance by a shilling profit on each book, and his chance of the quarterly book. Mr. Dilly, who buys the book for fifteen shillings, and who will expect the quarterly book if he takes five and twenty, will send it to his country customer at sixteen and six, by which, at the hazard of loss and the certainty of long credit, he gains the regular profit of 10%, which is expected in the wholesale trade. The country bookseller, buying at 16 and sixpence, and commonly trusting a considerable time, gains but 3 and sixpence, and if he trusts a year, not much more than 2 and sixpence, otherwise than as he may perhaps take as long credit as he gives. With less profit than this, and more you see he cannot have, the country bookseller cannot live, for his receipts are small and his debts sometimes bad. Thus, dear sir, I have been incited by Dr. Blank's letter to give you a detail of the circulation of books, which perhaps every man has not had opportunity of knowing, and which those who know it do not always, perhaps, distinctly consider i am etc samuel johnson march the twelfth seventeen seventy six footnote i am happy 
in giving this full and clear statement to the public to vindicate by the authority of the greatest author of his age that respectable body of men the booksellers of london from vulgar reflections as if their profits were exorbitant when in truth dr johnson has here allowed them more than they usually demand End of footnote. End of section fifty eight.